Hi, I'm Dan Pramack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Facebook. Today is Tuesday, October 27th. Consumer confidence is down, COVID cases are up, and we're focused on the fight over fracking. Both President Trump and Vice President Biden yesterday visited Pennsylvania, which both campaigns believe could be the tipping point state in next week's election. Biden, of course, has the home field advantage, having spent much of his childhood in Scranton. But Trump won Pennsylvania four years ago and thinks he could do it again due to his unwavering support of fracking. A few things to know. First, estimates are that Pennsylvania has around 26,000 jobs directly tied to natural gas and possibly up to twice that number indirectly involved. That's substantial, although it most represents half a percent of registered voters in the state, and it's well below Trump's recent claim that there are 940,000 fracking jobs in the state. And in fact, that 940,000, that's more fracking jobs than there are in all of America. Second, Joe Biden did say at one point during a primary debate that he'd seek to ban fracking, but his official campaign position has always been that the fracking ban would be limited to federal lands. Third, and this is really the most important point, America's fracking industry is in deep trouble, regardless of who wins the election. The sounds of hydraulic drills have been replaced with the sounds of layoffs. Bankruptcies and fire sale mergers have become commonplace. Now, some of this was already underway before the pandemic, but COVID supercharged the demand destruction as almost anyone actually involved in Pennsylvania's fracking industry would know. In 15 seconds, we'll dig deeper into the state of fracking and what it means for the future of American energy with Bob McNally, president of Rapidan Energy Group. But first, this. We're joined now by Bob McNally, president of Rapidan Group. So Bob, let's just start here. How big a problem has the pandemic been for the U.S. natural gas and oil market? So no question, COVID amounts to a black swan event for demand. Demand for oil got crushed by COVID, especially jet fuel, but also gasoline. Travel stopped. And we've seen just a historic, really unprecedented body blow to demand for transportation. Secondly, is what we saw in the second quarter, OPEC plus, Saudi Arabia and Russia got into a big fight and they opened the taps. So that's really two black swans sort of mating at the same time. And that's what sent oil prices down to historic low levels at one point negative $40 a barrel, which we've never seen. On the first part of that, on the demand side, not the oversupply side, but on the demand side, Is it your expectation that were we to get a vaccine and people to go back to school and to work and we to get back to, you know, 2019 life, call it, does that just fix itself? You know, a lot will come back if we have a real vaccine and we get back to something approaching the status quo ante. Yes, I think you'll see a lot come back. But you know what? Folks have gotten used to working from home. Business class air travel may never fully come back. I suspect we'll see a lot more gasoline demand, a lot more folks driving cars, probably less of jet fuel. So there may be some permanent shifts, less use of public transportation. Folks are moving out of the suburbs and so forth. So I think within the different types of oil products, you may see a little bit more gasoline, a little less jet fuel if we got that vaccine and got back to normal. But then the big debate, which is ready for us right after COVID, after this is over, the big debate is whether demand for oil and gas is about to peak and plateau due to climate change concerns and policy. That issue is waiting for us, and that isn't going away, even if we get the vaccine and so forth. 
There have obviously been lots of layoffs, bankruptcies, kind of fire sale mergers, particularly within the shale patch. Do you expect those are going to continue or have we seen the worst of that already? I think it's going to continue. We're still in a bust phase and the risk to oil prices and the risk to policy facing these shale companies is still high and it's going to get higher even next year. We are not out of the woods yet. We've had stability so far in the second half of the year after the gut-wrenching plunge of oil prices in the second quarter. They've been glacially smooth at about $40 a barrel. That's probably not going to last forever. And the risk is they could go down further next year. And then if we do have a democratic sweep, the regulatory risk facing the oil and gas sector in the United States is going way up. Those two things mean that the oil and gas sector in the United States remains vulnerable to risk, and you'll probably see more consolidations going forward even next year as a result of that. Take me past that, though. If there's a democratic sweep, what do you see as the most significant, likely regulatory changes? Well, on the regulatory changes, I would say the first thing really hitting it is not regulatory, but it's Iran's oil coming back. Joe Biden's been very clear he wants to go back to that JCPOA. And that means 1.8 million barrels a day of oil returning to the market probably next year in an already glutted market. So that I want to make clear. The biggest impact to shale next year is not regulatory. It's not the federal ban on federal permitting and leasing. It's the return of Iran's oil next year. But if you go three years out, then you're into this regulatory risk. Number one, obviously no federal permitting. But you know what? There's a lot of acreage, right? now, that's not going to bite for a couple of years. It's really going to be, I think, new regulations we'll see on the financial sector. Companies, investors are going to have to disclose the risk they're taking by investing in oil and gas companies. Permitting is going to get a lot lengthier and a lot costlier. Greenhouse gas emissions are going to be hardwired into permit decisions in a way we can't even think of now or haven't seen in the United States. And that finally, taxes. Joe Biden repeatedly promises to uh, end the subsidies. He's not talking about necessarily ending fossil fuels tomorrow, but he does want to end the subsidies tomorrow or what they call tax incentives. So if you're the oil and gas sector and you're looking at this, it's sort of like what I call, for those of us uh, who kind of studied the Vietnam War, a Tet Offensive. It's going to be a broad, shocking policy assault on the oil and gas sector from various areas of regulation, some of them familiar and some of them brand new, like these financial regulations. One of the Biden campaign arguments isn't that we're going to eliminate the U.S. energy industry. It's that we're going to move it over to renewables. When it comes to jobs, though, I'm curious. How replaceable are oil and gas jobs with renewable jobs, particularly in terms of geography? Are these jobs going to be in the same places? No, it's not that simple. First of all, you're going to need a lot fewer workers to work in the solar and the wind, wind farms and so forth. A lot fewer than you do, and making electric vehicles for that matter, than you do now in the U.S. automotive sector running on gasoline or producing oil and gas. Now, it so happens that uh, where we have the ancient sunlight energy, which is what oil is, is where we get the modern sunlight. So it is sunny in Texas. Uh, Texas is one of the leading uh, states in terms of renewable electric power, uh, wind and solar. And so, yes, in the the West, you have the sunnier spots, but the problem is that's not where the demand for electricity is. doesn't matter with oil. Oil, you can produce it in sunny Texas and put it on a pipe or a ship and send it to the drivers on the coast. The problem with uh, renewable electricity is it exists and it's we have the, the best resources in the sunny parts of the Midwest and the south of the country, but the demand is on the coast. And so transmitting it, of course, is more difficult and you can't store it. This isn't a, a situation where somebody walks off of a drilling rig and walks into a solar power plant and is, um, you know, managing load or installing solar panels. I don't think so. If you could have asked a single question to the two candidates about the U.S. energy industry, what would your question have been? 
I probably would have asked, you know, Donald Trump to elaborate a little bit on his newfound conviction that OPEC plus is good, that OPEC is good, because Donald Trump through all of his career has been castigating OPEC right up there with China. And for, for Joe Biden, I really would like him to explain a little more why natural gas moved from the ally column under the Obama-Biden administration just four years ago. Natural gas was a bridge to a clean fuel future. It is much less emitting than coal and oil. It also backstops intermittent renewables like wind and solar. And I think one of the rem most remarkable metamorphoses in modern American politics on energy has been the Democratic Party, but Joe Biden's shift where gas is no longer the friend, that bridge, but it is the enemy and it must be driven out as fast as possible. And I'd like to know what caused him to come to that conclusion. Do you have a sense on how all this plays in Pennsylvania, where it seems that a large percentage of people oppose fracking, but there are also a lot of jobs tied to it in the state? I think we get complacent when we have abundant energy. And so that is why you can see this disconnect where the public can say it's not just in Pennsylvania, it's elsewhere. It's like, you know, I think we got to get rid of fracking or yeah, we got to get to renewables. That's really easy to say at $2.20 gasoline with electricity prices low, with natural gas prices low because of the boom, and with at least a few years behind us where we've had an expansion. I think what we tend to see though is when we suddenly lose that cheap, affordable energy, our policies change. I'd say the reason you can have this disconnect, you can have an oil producing and a gas producing in the case of Pennsylvania state, but at the same time have the folks and say, you know, I really don't care. We, we got to get off of this stuff. It's hurting the planet and uh, it's fine. It's brave at $2 a gallon and very cheap gas, but I think views will change when those prices go higher. Bob McNally, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Welcome back. What we're watching today is the vaccine race, which has seen three major developments in the last 24 hours. Number one, both AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson said they're resuming their respective phase three trials after pauses that had been caused due to adverse patient events. AstraZeneca also said that its vaccine has produced similar immune responses in older and younger patients. Number two, Pfizer suggested in an investor call that it's unlikely to release its safety and efficacy data this week despite earlier expectations that it might. Three, Novavax said it will delay the start of its phase three vaccine trials by about a month, now starting at the end of November. The bottom line, there had been fears that one or more drug makers would seek emergency use authorization for a vaccine prior to election day, thus raising the prospect that approval could be politicized. Now, that's no longer in play. Today, we are also watching a mega merger in the US semiconductor space with AMD agreeing to buy Zilinx for $35 billion in stock. The big takeaway here is that this deal and price tag reflects accelerating cloud computing growth, particularly from big tech companies like Amazon and Google, since AMD will use Zilinx to increase its stake in the data center market. And finally today, we are continuing to watch the early vote totals, which have already surpassed the total number of early votes from 2016. And there are two competing theories on what this means. One is that 2020 turnout will be record-breaking, driven largely by passions on both sides of Donald Trump. On the other hand, this might simply be about pulling the vote forward with most of these extra early voters being folks who would have shown up on November 3rd, if not for the pandemic. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national Black Cat Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.